I believe in our uh, study of church history that we uh, had gotten to the point where we were looking at Luther as a teacher. We had uh, made reference to his uh, zeal as a monk, um, and we were talking a bit uh, about the excessive amount of time that Luther uh, would spend in the uh, confessional, um, that obviously the sacramental system of Rome was not giving him peace. And we introduced uh, John Staupitz, his father confessor, uh, an elderly man um, who directed him toward teaching. Um, if you have taken the time uh, or had the opportunity to take the time to look at either of the Luther movies I have referred you to, uh, Staupitz was well represented in, uh, in both of those films. And you can see the important role that he had in, uh, in Luther's life and in the Martin Luther heretic scene um, when Luther cries out, what shall I do? Uh, he says, uh, uh, get more sleep, eat more food, and learn about God, uh, was, his, uh, was his suggestion. And as a part of learning about God, he sent uh, Luther on the academic uh, track. And so he begins teaching at, uh, well, had we, actually, let me back up a second, I, I Pretty certain that we talked about the deep disappointment on Luther's part in his going to Rome, correct? Uh, how that had had an impact on him. Okay, just want to make sure, don't want to skip over things uh, in, in the process. Uh, remember that he saw you know, the Pope riding through the streets in armor. And uh, um, I, I don't remember mentioning, though, uh, the Italian priests. Um, one of the things, uh, yeah, okay, this is, I, need, I need to make sure this is in the record, shall we say. Uh, one of the things that Luther specifically narrates uh, in his 1510 trip to Rome was the um, attitude of the Italian priests toward visitors and the love of money, wine, and women. Uh, that was prevalent amongst the priesthood in Rome. And one of the stories he tells is that you would have these buildings in Rome that had multiple altars around the outside of the room. And so uh, a priest could, for a small amount of money, rent an altar uh, to say Mass. And so what you would do is, uh, if someone wanted to have a Mass said, uh, for a loved one who was sick or had perished, was in purgatory, whatever, you would pay uh, the priest and they would go in and say mass for your loved one. And, you know, the idea is, though it wasn't really theology proper, the idea is that a mass said in Rome is, you know, a little bit better than a mass said someplace else. You know, maybe God's attention is a little bit more focused on Rome than other places. And uh, this is really common in all sorts of religions, obviously. You can look at Islam, and there are certain cities where things are, you know, eh, 
prayers are heard a little bit better there and and uh, that kind of thing. And uh, even in Mormonism, um, you know, you could go out to the temple in Mesa and get, get married in that temple. It's a pretty big temple. It's been around a long time. But, you know, if you get married out in the new, the new temple out on Happy Valley Road, no, Pinnacle Peak Road, uh, out in the North Valley, it's, a, it's really tiny. It's one of the smallest LDS temples in the world. And it's sort of like, yeah, you got married in the temple, but... You know, uh, I mean, if you're really, really important, you get married in Salt Lake. You know, I mean, the Salt Lake Temple, the only people who get to go in the Salt Lake Temple are the upper echelon. Uh, in fact, if you're not aware of this, uh, the only temple in the United States where um, they still use actors to act out all the scenes in the endowment ceremonies is in Salt Lake. Every place else, it's a film, video. So it's you know special to get to go through the Salt Lake Temple. Well, anyways, that's what's going on in Rome. And so Luther observed this, and, and as a priest, he could go into these places, and he recognized that what the, what the priests were doing there in Rome is they would take this money, and they would go in, and in some cases, they were just flying through the Mass, skipping major portions of it, and in some instances, we're not even doing it in Latin, knowing that the person for whom they're doing this couldn't understand Latin anyways, uh, was a barbarian, quote-unquote. Uh, they would just mumble nonsense and just so they could do the most number of masses per day and get the most money. And he's watching this. He's seeing this. He's observing this. And, of course, you also have the uh, famous set of stairs there in uh, Rome, still there today. Uh, who was it? Uh, an acquaintance of mine, a uh, couple years ago, uh, went to this set of stairs. It's supposed to be the stairs that Jesus, that Jesus climbed up to, if I recall, Pilate's uh, place before the crucifixion or something like that. Again, stuff like that can be transported by angels. Uh, so it's just, you know, somehow it ended up in Rome. Um, and it, what you would do is you would, uh, even to this day, you climb this set of stairs on your knees, uh, saying particular prayers at each step to earn indulgences. And uh, this, this friend of mine decided he was going to go up those stairs. I think it cost money to do it. Um, and he was sort of, instead of just doing it knee by knee, was sort of army crawling type thing. And this little old lady down at the bottom just ripped into him in Italian. Uh, and uh, uh, so he had to slow down a little bit. But um, uh, I forget who it was. It was someone associated with, or it might have even been Dan Wallace. I'm not sure. But anyway, um, uh, so it's, it's still there, and you can still do this. Uh, and, and Luther, I think in one of the movies, is shown doing this. And then when he stands up at the top, he's like, did I just really accomplish something? I mean, honestly, could God's justice be satisfied by my climbing these stairs on my knees? You know, um, this type of thing. So that 1510 trip uh, was, was very, very important. So um, he receives his doctorate uh, October 19, 1512, um, and begins teaching at Wittenberg uh, in 1513, and he began by lecturing through the Psalter. <laughs> Could have done that on Wednesday nights here. Um, 
And in uh, April of 1515, he began lecturing on Romans, on Romans. And he finished that series in September of 1516. So uh, that's a fairly in-depth, lengthy uh, series, to be certain. I, I remember I got in trouble um, at a certain large Southern Baptist church that some of you are familiar with, as I am. I got in trouble years and years ago. Uh, I was teaching in a uh, uh, singles class, actually. Or was it the married class time? I forgot which one it was. Anyways, I was teaching. And you used a, what was called a quarterly. And I was really excited when I got the, the quarterly for the next quarter because we were going through Romans. I'm like, yes. And then I started looking at it, and I'm going, um, it covered Romans 9, 10, and 11 in a single lesson. A single lesson. And if you're the master teacher, you had like 20 minutes. So you're supposed to cover chapters 9, 10, 11 in 20 minutes. And if I recall, what I did is I sort of squished some others, and I, 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 I provided a little bit more time to try to do something meaningful in that section rather than just simply you know, jumping over it. Well, that's when I got called into the uh, Minister of Education's office. And, um, and I, I'm not making this up. Uh, I was, and I love the guy. He was a wonderful guy. But this was the mindset. He says, uh, Jim, he says, you, you need to, you need to uh, understand that our philosophy here is that when you teach Sunday school, you teach it with the idea that everyone sitting in front of you, this is the first time they've ever been to a Sunday school. So you can't, you can't build on what you did last week. You, you can't, no, you just absolute bottom shelf all the time. And I was just like, then why are we studying Romans? I mean, that's a, you. So anyways, uh, Romans has, uh, has had a way of having huge impact uh, over, over the centuries. And so uh, April to uh, September, April 1515, to September of 1516, he is in uh, Romans. And on October 27th of 1516, he begins to lecture on Galatians. Now, that tells you a little something. When you go straight from Romans to Galatians, maybe there's a common theme that has captured your attention. And, of course, the common theme there is justification. Um, now, this is a, a controversial uh, uh, topic, uh, item here. Um, I was taught in seminary, and I have, I, the more I obviously did a lot of study of Luther before the trip last year to, uh, to various places in uh, Luther's life uh, uh, in Deutschland, um, and I didn't find anything that contradict this, but one of the people that was uh, also speaking on the trip had a very different perspective than me on this. We sort of had a little give and take. But I was taught that somewhere in this time period, in the studying of Romans and Galatians, so between 1515 and 1517, Luther was converted and found freedom from his prison in Romans 117, that text that Luther finally comes to understand that God's righteousness 
which he had feared so deeply. God's righteousness, which was so repulsive to him in the sense that he is a sinner, could only see God's righteousness as the grounds of his own condemnation. Um, he comes to understand that God graciously in Jesus Christ provides his righteousness by faith, the great exchange, our sins imputed to Christ, his righteousness imputed to us. And so uh, somewhere between 1515 and 1517, uh, Luther comes to understand this and receives that, uh, that freedom uh, from the, the bondage to the, the constant cycle of sacraments and things. That doesn't mean that uh, he's figured it all out at that point in time. That's the starting place. When you're coming out of a, a system of tradition and error, um, it, it, is, it is very rare, extremely rare, that you just, in one day, poof, oh, I see it all. Because you start seeing the interconnectedness of truth, and, and, it, and it, it, it's like a flower opening to you, but it, it takes time. A lot of people, uh, you know, sort of would rather wait until Luther's railing at the Pope as the Antichrist in 1519 uh, to say, ah, that's, that's, when he is, that's when he is converted. Um, such, such is, uh, I think, uh, not a wise uh, way to, uh, to approach the, uh, the subject. One of the key issues that, one of, the, one of the rays of light, we might call it, was, again, provided by Erasmus' uh, new instrument, that first edition of the Latin uh, Greek diglot that we mentioned when we talked about Erasmus, uh, which first came out in 1516. And um, it was in comparing the Latin and its command, poenitentium uh, agate, do penance, which, of course, in medieval Catholicism was a command to voraciously engage in the penitential system. And so you were given penances by your confessor and, and the, the fervor and sincerity with which you pursued uh, the doing of those penances was directly related to the general benefit that they would give. And, and any imperfection in your performing of these penances leaves temporal punishments upon your soul, which you will have to suffer for in purgatory. And so it was, uh, here was a, a classic example of where a, a biblical command had morphed into something very different than its original, partly because of tradition and partly because of language. And in looking at the Latin, potentium agate, he looks across the page and he looks at the Greek and it's metanoiate. And... He looks up uh, that word, meta and noia, noia'o. Uh, it, it has to do with thinking. It has to do with thought. It has to do with, with the mind, with the attitude. And, you know, you know, you've heard of metamorphosis and things like that. So it is a, it is a change 
of mind and attitude, a change of direction. And so when John the Baptist says, repent, uh, it involves a fundamental change of attitude toward the, the, the activities and, and attitude that you have towards sin. It is a turning away from one and, a, and going the opposite direction, a change of mind. But it's not doing penance. Um, you may, there may be things that you feel you need to do. If, if, if I'm going to repent of this, this properly, then there are things I need to do. But, but that's the result of the repentance, not the nature of the repentance. And so it is that kind of ray of light uh, that he begins to, uh, gives him the ability to examine the traditions that had bound him so uh, deeply uh, in that uh, still very medieval form of Catholicism that he, that he had inherited. Now, on the subject of indulgences, um, because this is the next big thing, until 1517, Saxony itself had been spared the indulgent sellers. Um, Frederick uh, had kept them out, not so much... Um, because of a dislike on the part of indulgences on his part. No. Frederick was a huge collector of relics. And um, the castle church of uh, Wittenberg, uh, where I had the bucket list opportunity uh, last year of preaching from the high pulpit uh, right above Luther's grave, uh, there in Wittenberg, um, contained an entire um, you know, hallways and hallways of relics. And I, I know I had this saved somewhere on this uh, beast somewhere else, but I've saved it again, and I'll probably lose it again in the future. Um, that was the one advantage of our old technology. There wasn't so much space on it, you could lose anything. <laughs> it could only contain so much. So it was pretty easy to find stuff. Now that you've got gigs and gigs and gigs, you can save documents, and if you don't remember what in the world you called it uh, and can't find the proper keyword to search for it, it just, poof, just disappears, gone. And you get to find everything again. Um, I would like to uh, read for you... Um, and I, I, you know, I may have actually read some of this to you before, but uh, I think this is the appropriate place. And since this is being recorded, uh, some people may not listen to the entire church history series and therefore miss some of this before. Um, but there at the castle church, uh, there was an extensive collection of relics. And here is just an excerpt uh, from the official catalog. This is the official catalog of the relics that were uh, found in Wittenberg. Three pieces of the city where the Virgin Mary was born, one piece of a yarn which she spun, one piece of the house where she lived at the age of 14, two pieces of the city of Mount Zion where Mary lived, two pieces of the room where Mary was greeted by the angel, five particles of the milk of the Virgin Mary, one piece of the tree where Mary nursed the Lord near the Garden of Balsam. Look, you had to become rather creative eventually. I mean, you know, if all you had were 
pieces of the cross and nails. It's only so much you can do with that. So I wouldn't have even thought of, of 80% of these. I, I, I never would have. Um, four pieces of the hair of Mary, three pieces of the shirt of Mary, three pieces of one robe of Mary, eight pieces of other robes of Mary, Four pieces of the belt of Mary, seven pieces of the veil of Mary, two pieces of the veil of Mary, which was sprinkled with the blood of Christ under the cross. One piece of the city where Mary died. Hmm. One piece of the wax candle given to Our Lady when she died. Six pieces of the grave of Mary, two pieces of the earth of the grave of Mary. What's the difference? I don't know. Um, one piece of the wax, uh, uh, one, one piece uh, da, 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 of the place where Mary ascended into heaven, a silver picture of the little baby Jesus. Now, <laughs> you think that was a Polaroid, or was it was it six forty by forty digital, or exactly you know one ten? Yeah, 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 one ten. Um, uh, four pieces of the city where the Lord Jesus was born, one piece of the diaper in which he was wrapped, 13, 13 pieces of the manger of Jesus, one piece of the cradle, two pieces of the hay, that'd be doing real well after almost 1,500 years, uh, one piece of the straw on which the Lord lay when he was born, <coughs> one piece of the gold, and of the myrrh, which the three kings offered unto the Lord, one piece of the city where the Lord Jesus was circumcised. Four pieces of the mountain on which the Lord Jesus fasted. Two pieces of the city where Christ preached the Lord's prayer. One piece of the stone on which Jesus stood while weeping over Jerusalem. One piece of the stone from which Christ got on the donkey. Who would have thought of that? Would any of it? I wouldn't have. No. Two pieces of the ground where the Lord Christ was arrested. Five pieces of the table on which the Lord Christ held the Last Supper with his disciples. One piece of the bread of which Christ ate with his disciples during the Last Supper. Now that's interesting. You know what's interesting about that one to me? In this wouldn't have necessarily, it's, it's around this time, but according to modern Roman Catholic theology, Jesus transubstantiated that bread. So that shouldn't be sitting out on a table. That should be in a monstrance or a pix because it's the body of Jesus. So they hadn't quite gotten to that point yet. Um, uh, one piece of the land which was bought for the 30 pieces of silver for which Christ was betrayed, one piece of the Holy Land, well, that one, that one might be real. I mean, that's not all that difficult to do. Um, three pieces of stone with the Lord's sweated blood, one piece of the ground with the Lord's sweated blood, one piece of the stone sprinkled with the blood of Christ, three pieces of the Mount of Olives and of the Rod of Aaron, Two pieces of the rod of Moses, one piece of the burning bush, which Moses saw. <laughs> they had to keep that separate lest it light everything else up in the room. So uh, that, that, was, uh, that was a problem. Um, one piece of an object sprinkled with the blood of Christ, 11 pieces of Mount Calvary, two pieces of the Mount of Olives, one piece of the cloth with which the Lord wiped his disciples' feet, one piece of the robe of Christ, one piece of the seamless robe of Christ, one piece of the robe of Christ, one piece of his purple robe, two pieces of the cloth, which St. Veronica received from the Lord. Any of you see uh, Passion of the Christ? See the film, Passion of the Christ? Oh, you can admit it in here. It's okay. I had to see it. If you did, there, there's a point where Jesus is taking the cross to Calvary, and he's uh, given a cloth by a woman 
to wipe his face. And when he does, somehow it ends up with this perfect image of his face. That's St. Veronica. And that's one of the relics. And so this is the um, um, two pieces of cloth which St. Veronica received from the Lord, three pieces of the white robe in which the Lord was ridiculed by Herod, three pieces of the cloth with which our Lord's holy eyes were blindfolded, one piece of the beard of the Lord Jesus, one piece of the wax of the candles which touched the sidorium, sidorium of Christ, one piece of the wedge with which the cross of Christ was held. Again, I wouldn't have thought of that. Three pieces of the stone on which the cross stood, three pieces of the place where the cross of Christ was found, 12 pieces of the column where the Lord Christ was scourged and flogged. Um, now, these were in different aisles. So, like, here's the eighth aisle. So, in the eighth aisle, and you'd get a certain amount of indulgences for each aisle that you, that you would go down. Not just walk down, but say prayers in front of each of the relics. One piece of the rope with which Jesus was tied, three pieces of the rod with which the Lord Jesus was scourged, Three pieces of the whip with which the Lord Jesus was flogged. One piece of the stone upon which the Lord Jesus sat when he was crowned. One piece of the stone which was crushed while the Lord carried the cross. One piece of the sponge with which the Lord was given vinegar and gall. Two pieces of the crown of the Lord Jesus. Eight complete thorns of the crown of the Lord Jesus. One large piece of one nail which was driven through the hands or feet of the Lord Jesus. At least they left that as an option. A thorn which wounded the holy head, Lord Jesus, one piece of the holy cross, three pieces of the holy cross, three pieces of the three kinds of wood of the cross of Christ. That was probably a Trinitarian thing, I would imagine. A particularly large piece from the holy cross, 25 pieces of the holy cross, one piece of the stone which lay on the grave of Christ, 22 pieces of the grave of Christ, one piece of the stone from which Christ sent into heaven, a casket lined with silver in which are found 1,600 and 78 pieces, 76 pieces of holy remains, bones from holy places, which on account of faded writing can no longer be read and identified. All in all, 5,005 pieces, an indulgence of 100 days for each piece. There are eight halls, and each hall has an indulgence of 101 days in addition. So that's like the bonus thing. You know, if you order extra, you get, you know, the bonus thing. Uh, blessed are those who participate uh, therein. Yes, sir. The cloth of St. Veronica, how does that, or does it even relate to the Shroud of Turin? No. Totally it's, a, it's a different thing, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes, sir. What priests? Then or now? Then or now? Then. Like, if you had an honest conversation with them, they'd be like, really, do you really, really do this? Like, they'd be like, you know, they would, if they were completely honest, they don't actually believe it, but it's a way to keep the subject population. Well, I thought you had watched uh, Martin Luther Heretic. Because that's the that's that's one of the exact yeah, scenes yeah, was. But, but actually, the way they, they look, they sort of. Well, what he did. Well, what um, what um, what was his name? Um, yeah. <sighs> like a peer asked him instead of Martin Luther, would he like level with him and be like, yeah. 
Well, it was a peer. Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember. Um, the guy's name is escaping me, unfortunately. It's, I'm sorry? Um, he, he ends up um, becoming an Anabaptist. Um, just a second. Just a second. Um, it's, uh, this is bothering me. Okay, Zwickau Prophets, uh, Karlstadt, Andreas Karlstadt. Um, uh, the, the guy who answers the question in a rather uh, <coughs> odd fashion there while looking at the relics is Andreas Karlstadt. And um, he will eventually have a, a strong division with Luther and that will never be healed, uh, even though they meet later on in life. It, it just goes right back at it and... Uh, um, Karlstadt's eventually kicked out of Lutheran lands, and it, it's a sad story. But anyway, um, the way that Karlstadt answers, um, you know, he answers in the official church thing. And Luther's, of course, getting to the point of, you know, does this really do anything? Um, the official position of the church was that, yes, it does, and it wasn't just a political control type thing. I mean, these people were very strong supernaturalists, and so if you look at, uh, that's why I liked, I think both films uh, showed the traveling players and the, the passion plays and the punishment plays and the judgment plays that they would do. And um, if, you've got, if you've got peasants giving up the money they need to eat to buy indulgences, yeah, they think it's true. Yeah, they think it's true. And the, the, the priests aren't in any much... The, the real priests that lived amongst the people weren't in any much better shape than the people themselves were. So if they didn't think it was real, uh, they would have found a way around taking that money from the peasants for it. So, no, I, they believed it was, it was real. Um, what was the first question? I forget what it was. Oh, well... No. Uh, well, the Latin still says "Poenitentia magate," so it's certainly interpreted uh, that way. But uh, Roman Catholic biblical scholarship recognizes, uh, at least on a scholastic level, what "metanoiate" means. Yeah. Uh, so there is there are the indulgences, uh, there are the the relics in the castle church, but that's probably why. There had been no indulgence preachers in Saxony. As Frederick didn't want competition. I mean, he spent a lot of money to get that collection of relics. And you had to pay to go through. So you don't want somebody else coming along and selling outside of the church what you're offering inside of the church. So up to 1517, that hadn't happened. However, in 1517, Johann Tetzel, T-E-T-Z-E-L, Tetzel, uh, a Dominican, um, began preaching indulgences in the area under the authority of Albrecht, the Archbishop of Mainz. Now, I think I've already mentioned to you the reason why um, this took place was because of the fact that Albrecht had had to take out an equivalent of modern money, an over-million-dollar loan from a German banking family um, to buy the archbishopric. 
he had to do that because he already had too many positions of authority. It was against the rules of the church, so the only way to get a a waiver, in essence, was to spend big bucks. Well, once he got it, then he had to find uh, means of enhancing the income uh, of the church in his area, so he's got the money to repay his loans. And so he allows this Dominican by the name of Johann Tetzel to begin to preach indulgences. And uh, how many of you have seen this? I bet you just a couple of you have. Um, ah, Josh, very good. In my first book, uh, 1990, was it? January 90, yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, 1990. Uh, it's cracking. It's <laughs> got out of the pastor's office. Um, it's, uh, it do be old, and the pages are starting to get... Anyway, um, here is the, the text of one of Tetzel's indulgences, Okay. May our Lord Jesus Christ have pity on thee, blank, <laughs> name, and absolve thee by, thy, uh, by the merits of his most holy passion. And I, in virtue of the apostolical power that has been confided in me, absolve thee from all ecclesiastical censures, judgments, and penalties, which thou mayest have committed, however great and enormous they may be. And for whatsoever cause, were they even reserved for our most holy father, the Pope, and for the apostolic see. So, I mean, this is a big claim. You know, even if the Pope had condemned you, this indulgence could free you from that condemnation. I blot out all the stains of inability and all marks of infamy that thou mayest have drawn upon thyself on this occasion. I remit the penalties that thou shouldst have endured in purgatory. I restore thee anew to participation in the sacraments of the church. I incorporate thee afresh in the communion of saints and reestablish thee in the purity and innocence which thou hadst at thy baptism." So that in the hour of death, the gate by which sinners enter the place of torments and punishment shall be closed against thee. And on the contrary, the gate leading to the paradise of joy shall be open. And if thou shouldst not die for long years, this grace will remain unalterable until thy last hour shall arrive. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost, Amen. Friar John Tetzel, commissary, has signed this with his own hand. It is uh, reported, at least by Luther, uh, that uh, when Tetzel would come into town, you know, he, there there would be a whole procession of people, um, and uh, the text of an indulgence uh, would be carried in front of him, nailed to a cross. Huh. Nailed to a cross. Yes, ma'am. Well, of course they knew the gospel. This is This is what you are you are vastly underestimating the power of tradition <clears throat> and the reality that um, things develop slowly but unfortunately, uh, for example, uh, when, we, when we talked about John Wycliffe, we pointed out that Wycliffe came to the conclusion by study that the doctrine of transubstantiation was a relatively new thing. He, he was able to, by study, realize that it had been dogmatized in 1215. 
of the people in Europe in that day in at the end of the 14th century, it's same contemporaneously with Wycliffe, because of anachronism, thinking that things had always been the way they were now, and the church, of course, always presents its teachings as if this is what we've always believed, 99% of the people believe everyone's always believed that. Everyone's always believed in transubstantiation. Everyone's always believed in indulgences. And so the very thought of going, hmm, uh, is, a, is a part of your saying, I'm wiser than every other Christian that's come before me. Don't underestimate that. It's real easy for us uh, in our modern situation to look back and go, well, they should have seen this. They should have seen that. It's so clear to us. Uh, it wasn't clear to them. It wasn't clear to them. Um, but we're reading the same text. Yeah, but that's why you've got to very, very carefully look for the lenses that you are applying to the reading of that text. And we have them too. We have them too. That's why doing serious exegesis of the text is so important. Um, that's why... Um, that's why... I still very strongly encourage the learning of the original languages um, because it's one of the greatest tools that you can have to identify the lenses that exist between the text and yourself. Um, so anyway, no, I, I, they, they, they certainly uh, uh, had the text in front of them, but when you've had it reinterpreted in the light of tradition, generation after generation after generation, it's real easy for us to say, I would have been with Luther. I don't know that I would have been with Luther. That was a pretty scary thing to do. And Luther himself, as we're going to see when he, before he appears before Charles V, you know, the big question had been asked him over and over again, what makes you right and everybody else wrong? Who do you, you're arrogant. Who do you think you are? Has weight. Has weight. So anyway, um, there's the text of the, um, uh, of the indulgence. Uh, it was rumored um, and indeed reported by Luther himself in a letter to Albrecht that Tetzel went so far as to claim that his indulgence letter could bring a man forgiveness for having slept with the Virgin Mary. Uh, one story that seems to have solid historical grounds speaks of a German noble asking Tetzel if it was possible to buy an indulgence for a sin that was yet to be committed. Now, remember, the indulgences were sold on the basis of your social status. So a nobleman, this is a big sale, okay? The hoi polloi in the field, you know, the peasants didn't have to give much. Uh, but a nobleman, that's going to that's gonna increase his take. So his answer may have been influenced by the hope for financial gain. Tetzel answered that it was as long as payment was made immediately. <laughs> Forthwith, the man purchased the indulgence. When Tetzel left town, the man laid in wait with his own entourage of men and ambushed him, beating him severely and taking all his money... <laughs> sending him on his way with the comment that this was the sin that he had been contemplating and for which he had purchased the indulgence. When Tetzel complained to Duke George, he was furious until he heard the whole story. He refused to punish the nobleman in light of the fact he still had the indulgence letter. Uh, 
Now, there, there are a lot of stories from this time period, and we need to be careful. But given the anti-Italian, pro-nationalist German, remember, the feelings of nationalism were on the rise at this point in time, um, f- feelings that were going on, uh, this is not out of the, the historical realm of, of possibility at all um, in light of what was, uh, what was going on. So obviously, Tetzel's teachings contradicted that which Luther was discovering from the pages of the Bible itself when he began to understand what Tetzel was preaching and saw how it was affecting the parishioners in his own parish, he became incensed. Um, there is a story told, again, questionable, but there is a story told uh, that Luther had found one of his parishioners, one of the people from Wittenberg in a, in a ditch, drunk, uh, on the Lord's Day. And, and when he began to rebuke him for his drunkenness, the man produced a, an indulgence letter. And this was part of uh, Luther's uh, anger at this, uh, this whole thing. Um, now, you need to understand, and I, I know I mentioned this last year, but let me mention it again. There, were, there are all sorts of beautiful pictures that were spread all over Germany uh, and even here in the United States last year, uh, prior to October, of Luther standing with a hammer in his hand and pointing at this nicely, looks like even printed document, uh, up on the up on the door, and everyone's like, and there's so many people. I just, I, I just lost count. This was Luther protesting, and that's where Protestant comes from. No, it's not. Protestant's not going to come along for nearly a, over a decade after this, and it's a legal term in the in the in the Holy Roman Empire about the minority of electors protesting against the action of the majority of electors. We'll get to that later on, but it has nothing to do with Luther at the castle church door. Um, secondly, you know, when I was a kid and I heard about this event, I thought there was probably a church service going on inside, and the angry guy comes up outside and bang, bang, bang. You know, you, we, we would hear that. Despite the wonderful whoopee whoopee doors, uh, we would hear someone banging away on the front door of the church and nailing something up there. Um, and that this was, you know, that this document were all the errors of the Roman Catholic Church. Baloney. It's all baloney. It may look good, but that's not what happened. Um, I would recommend to you sometime, if you've, you know, you don't have to read all of them, but it doesn't take forever. Read the 95 Theses. Uh, the 95 Theses are 95 propositions for academic debate that Luther is challenging other universities to engage in. This was a sporting match. They didn't have what we call soccer, what they call football uh, back then. And so the only way that universities competed with one another was academic debate. And this was the guy at the AA school challenging the 5A schools, come take me on, and this is what we'll debate. And so he wrote up 95 debate propositions. 
as a faithful son of the church. He does not view himself as a quote-unquote Protestant. That word would have had no meaning whatsoever to him. None whatsoever. He has started to see what the problem is, but the idea of a Reformation, of a Lutheran church, any of that stuff, farthest from his mind it could possibly be. Farthest from his mind it could possibly be. Just never even contemplated. Um, So... We'll pick up with the 95 theses. Maybe I'll uh, pull some of them up uh, next week, and we can uh, take a look at them, uh, at some of them. But uh, just, I, I hate to, to ruin uh, you know, what you thought uh, from those pictures. But man, I'm going to tell you, uh, even though it's been 500 years, there's still a lot of fiction uh, about what was actually going on there. But we'll pick up with the 95 theses, what they contain, what they're about, uh, Lord willing, next week. Let's close the Father, once again, we thank you for the extension of your grace and mercy to us and that we have the freedom to gather together this day uh, in peace and comfort. We ask that we would uh, be better better students of your work in this world, better servants of yours, and Lord, that you would be with us as we go in to worship you now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.